Good morning. I said in the first service, um, sometimes if you don't say that, I said in the first service, you feel like a fake because you feel like you're repeating yourself. And anyway, I can't explain it. It's just a weird feeling. Okay. But anyway, the, um, this Friday um, is the Christmas outreach. And um, sometimes it's very nerve-wracking to invite like guests and people um, that you know or whatever because you don't know what to expect. You don't know if something's going to be strange and weird and that sort of thing. So the nice thing about this Friday is you you know that this group is the group that will be ministering. So you know that it's going to be quality and um, you don't need to be afraid to invite people. So I hope you can, are able to do that. It should be a great, should be a great, um, great night. Um, hello, everyone. You guys look, you guys look good out there. I don't know what it is. Okay, anyway, um, I just wanted to start off, if you'll indulge me for a few minutes, just to kind of explain where I'm at personally and why I'm not at everything that happens at the church. And I've had people think that I had died. People have thought that I, Walt and I got a divorce. And some people have thought that I backslid. So I wanted to explain why, where I've been and why I'm not at everything um, so that you know. Because, because we are family and I just feel like you deserve to know what's going on in my life and where I'm at and why you don't see me all the time. Actually, I've been coming to second service for the last few weeks. So now the 9 o'clock service wonders where I'm at. And then if I'm, you know, come to the 9 o'clock service, then you guys wonder where I'm at. So I've only been coming to one service since I started graduate school. And usually um, if I go to the first service, I'll usually cook lunch for the family, and then they can eat when they get home from church. Or if um, I have a lot of schoolwork, sometimes I'll leave church and go right to the UNO library. So um, so that's why I've only been going to one service. But um, basically what happened is about three and a half years ago, um, actually prior to that, I had been the interim youth pastor for about a year. So I was actually here full time. I was doing everything and around a lot. And then after that, um, after we um, had a youth pastor, then I actually went to to school at UNO for graduate school. And graduate school is where you go after you've had your four-year bachelor's degree. And so I went um, to UNO to get uh, a graduate degree. And what happened was is I qualified because of some of my test scores, not the test score I failed that I told you guys about before, but this was a different test score that I did well on. And so I ended up getting a graduate assistantship, um, which meant that I ended up having to work at the school for 20 hours a week. Um, and, and that was kind of like a trading for tuition. So it was a blessing um, because you get your tuition waived and stuff like that. But what it meant was that I had to work 20 hours a week at school. So I started graduate school, full-time graduate school, which is very difficult and requires a lot of time. But in addition to that, I was having to work at UNO for 20 hours a week. So it basically felt like I had completely disappeared because I was working and I was going to school full time. And so that has been about three and a half years I've been doing that. And I keep praying that I don't get that renewed so that I can quit school. But I kid you not, one year after another, they, they give me, you know, a, an assistantship. And so Anyway, um, that's a true story, by the way. I'm not just saying that. 
Um, so when I finished, I ended up getting a master's degree in social and personality psychology. And then I um, moved into getting my PhD. And so that's where I'm at now. And I'm basically halfway done with school. I've gone to school three and a half years. And if everything goes well, I'll have three and a half more years of school before I end up finishing with my PhD. Now, sometimes your PhD, it can extend a little bit longer. It can, it's kind of hard to control. But basically, that's approximately what it will be, is about three and a half more years. And so um, I will get a degree in developmental psychology when I finish. And I will be considered a psychologist and with a doctorate. But it doesn't mean I'm a medical doctor, and it also, it's not therapy. I won't be a counselor or a therapist. That's a common misunderstanding because of psychology. So I just wanted to clear that up. So, so basically what the kind of degree I will get is a research-based degree, which means I can do research um, regarding human development and also um, probably I, I think that what... God has planned is that uh, that I would end up teaching at a public Doc One university, but I don't know that that's going to end up happening. You know, I could end up doing something else with with it, but that's kind of what Walton I think might end up happening. So um, that's that's what's going on, and and so I at this point I haven't um, been confirmed that I will have funding through the end of my program. So um, that means that I'm for sure going to try it unless something strange happens. I am going to finish school um, and end up with my Ph.D. So that's what's happening. Um, and we feel a piece about it. You know, Walt has been actually Walt has been m more supportive than I have been of myself. You know, um, like the year I got a master's degree, it's like we were at this thing with the staff. What's the highlight of your year? And Walt was the one that said I got, Carrie got her master's degree. And I was like, that was not the highlight of my year, but it was the highlight of Welch's year. Okay. Anyway, um, so I've had a lot of amazing opportunities by being in a, in a um, secular, you know, public university. And, um, but it's very, very difficult. It's a very difficult environment. It's very, I haven't met a single Christian the whole time I'm there. I have had one of my professors that um, actually came and visited Glad Tidings. I invited her and she came. And I have had a student come to Glad Tidings I invited. And I have had a few students come to my office and to, because they wanted me to pray for them. So I've had like baby step um, opportunities while I've been there. Um, and it's not like, you know, trying to reach someone that is, you know, um, Muslim, you know, how it can take years. It feels kind of like that to me, although I'm sure it's not that bad. But um, basically, you, you're just salt and light there, and then you let, allow God to have opportunities as they open up for you to do. But I, I wanted to tell you this story. This is a true story. It's an amazing story um, that has happened um, in terms of a supernatural situation. What happened was, is I was trying to reach, I was trying to get this guy, this professor on my thesis committee. And he is a Nigerian sociologist. And he ju it just fit with my research. And so even though he wasn't a psychologist, um, I wanted to, you know, ask him to do this. So anyway, but he was very, I mean, he never returned my emails. He was very difficult to reach. He did not seem interested in talking to me whatsoever. So finally, he agreed. He said, I will meet with you from 3 o'clock till 3.15 
on this given day. Okay. So he was going to ask to slot me 15 minutes, you know? So I was like, I'll take it. So I meet up with this guy and we actually hit it right off right at the beginning. I mean, we just hit it off. And so we began to, you know, have this dialogue and discussion and at a, at a university, that's like a good thing, you know, where you like disagree about stuff and you talk about stuff. And that's kind of like what people like to do, um, like to do there. So we were having this great discussion, this great dialogue and about two hours into the conversation of our 15 minute meeting, um, he's, he asked, what does your husband do for a living? And I, I dread that question there because as soon as I say to anybody that my husband's a pastor, the wall just, the wall just goes right up. So I really dread that, um, that question. And I said to him, well, he's a pastor. And he was like, really? And I was like, yes, he is. And so um, I wrote down the questions that he asked. So, um, so he perked right up, and then he said, well, what does your husband think about you being in a program, a secular program like this? And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of a firecracker personality, and we've been married a long time, so he's used to me, so he's supportive, you know, of me doing this. And then he said, what about uh, the humanistic material? How does he feel about that? He said that, that word. He said, how, how does he feel about humanistic, you learning humanistic material? And I said, he's supportive of it, you know. And then he said, well, what does he, how does he feel about you working and being away from your family so much? And I said, I do, I do miss my family a lot and I am gone more than I've ever been gone, but he's very supportive of me even when I'm gone. And then he said, Well, you must not be able to be at all the church programs with a demanding program like you're in. Because he knows, like, how demanding my program is. He said, well, you probably can't be at all the church meetings and programs. And I said, that's true. I can't. But I think the church is basically supportive of that. And he said, what do the people of your church think about you going into a secular program like psychology? And I said, well, I said, I'm not sure, but... For the most part, I I think that they're supportive. What about how busy a pastor's wife should be doing the work of the church? And I said, well, you know, we we're a larger church, and so there's staff on the at the church that are able to, you know, cover for me basically. And um, and he said, uh, what do the people of your church? Oh yeah, okay. What do they think about you not being at church functions? Kid you not. These are the questions he's asking me. How do you feel about, how do they feel about you not being at church functions? And he kept pressing this issue and pressing this issue. And I'm like, good grief. Why does he care so much? You know, it's like, he didn't even want to meet with me. And now you're like, what do the people of your church feel about you being in a humanistic secular program at a public university? You know, I'm like, um, I think they don't really care. I don't know, you know. So anyway, um, he kept pressing this and pressing this. And then by this point, my kids are texting me. What's for dinner? Where are you at, mom? How come you're not home? You know, can we have cereal for dinner? You know, and the phone, I mean, my phone just keeps going off, going off, going off, you know. And um, so anyway, and then he, and so we have this happening and the kids are waiting. And then he dropped this bomb. About two hours and 45 minutes into this meeting, 
He said, my dad is a pastor in Nigeria. My mom is her own person, kind of like you, and had opinions of her own and wanted to do things like go to the university. But my dad never approved of it, and it created such tension in their marriage that it ended up resulting in them getting a divorce. When that happened, I turned my back on God, and I have been an atheist ever since. That, he said, is why I'm so interested in what you have to say. So we talked some more. I couldn't believe it because he had never, he was asking all these questions and he never gave any indication at all, you know, that his dad was a pastor. I mean, it had been several, you know, 15 or more minutes since he said, what's your husband do? And he could have said right then, oh, my dad's a pastor too. You see what I'm saying? He didn't do that. He just kept pressing, 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 pressing. And then all of a sudden, at the very end, he just drops that bomb. So we talked some more, but I needed to get home so because we're out of milk. So, so we said our goodbyes, and he agreed to be on my thesis committee. As I was leaving school, check this out. As I was leaving school, I saw him walking toward a parking lot that was a little ways away, and it was winter, so I pulled up beside him. And I said, do you need a ride to the park, you know, to your car? And he said, no, that's okay. It's a nice night. It's clear. And I'm almost there. I said, okay, so, you know, see you later kind of thing. And I drove away. Well, in a subsequent conversation that I had with him, I discovered that he had lived in a kind of a racist southern state as a professor right out of college. And his car broke down, and he was walking toward a location where he could get some help for his car. And the vehicle of white people showed, showed up, and he requested a ride, and they said that they wouldn't give him a ride. And he said, that, he, that he said, was when I stopped trusting white people. So this situation um, has actually shaped many of his sociology classes at UNO. They're very kind of militant in nature and very anti-white in their perspective. And so in one night, in one three-hour meeting with a man that I didn't know, um, I had accidentally slash supernaturally confronted him on two of the largest paradigms of his life, atheism and racial hatred. It was so ironic that I stopped and offered him a ride. You know, I mean, it was like, it was just a, it was no big deal, but it's like, if he had parked in a different place and I had parked in a different place, I wouldn't have even seen him walking. You see what I'm saying? But I saw him walking and I just stopped and rolled down the window and offered him a ride, which was the exact same scenario. Do you understand? Isn't that crazy? Anyway, but through all this, through all this, I've had to really dig deep to find out what is really inside me because I have wanted to quit. I have been overwhelmed. I've been extremely unhappy. I have been in despair. And honestly, the good times could be defined as the times when there is an absence of those things, um, not when, have I, when I have experienced real happiness. So I'll talk about this more as I go throughout uh, the message, but I've really had to, in these three and a half years, wrestle with God, um, not about like whether I believe he exists or anything like that, but 
but really wrestle with my faith in terms of how is going to how is God going to help me and how is God going to get me through this situation? And I think I mentioned before, and by situation, I'm talking about my education at this point. And I think I've explained on a different other times I've preached. I mean, literally, the intersection on Pacific where you turn in towards Elmwood Park. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Going to UNO. That light, whenever it hits red for like three years, I pray, God, help me fail a class. God, help me fail a class. I mean, I was praying for God to help me fail a class so I could get out of the program and end this stress, you know, this stress and agony is what it felt like. So anyway, I'll talk more about it a little bit, but to, but this morning we're going to tackle one of the most quoted and memorized and claimed verses in the Bible. Who can tell me what it is? No, that's a good one, though. John 3.16. That's probably true. Okay, second to that verse. Second to that verse. Does anybody have an idea? I'm talking now, focus on the words memorized and claimed verses. What is it? Um, you guys have good verses, but now you're... you're uh, no. Good, good guess. Man, you guys know your verses. Good grief. Okay, Jeremiah 29.11. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's true. You know, it's true for, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future. So let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for everyone that's here. Thank you so much that they're listening and they're, they care and they want to grow and they want to be more like you. God, we give this time to you. Be glorified in all we do and say, amen. Amen. So anyway, the last couple of weeks, Walt has preached some messages that kind of challenge your theology a little bit, looking at verses and kind of, you know, challenging what is commonly thought about that. And I think that's what I want to do with this, this verse um, again today and, and kind of uh, challenge our mindset and our understanding of this verse. Now, I was actually, um, I, I actually called Dr. Dada yesterday because Walt was, was gone and I wanted some information about the Bible and he's really, he's a real, he's like an encyclopedia, you know, about the Bible. So I call him and I ask him these questions and all this stuff and then he's like, Carrie, you're not going to try to preach you the whole Bible tomorrow, are you? And I was like, Actually, I am going to try to preach through the whole Bible tomorrow. It was so funny. So he, he's, he's heard me try to preach through the whole Bible, but I am going to try to preach through the whole Bible. I'm going to try to do it fast. Okay, so, so here we go. There are basically five sections of the Bible. I'm, um, I'm going to share this because it's important to the context of this verse. There are basically five sections of the Bible. The first section of the Bible is like the history and the law section. And it's about 3,000 years. And uh, the second half where it's like the law section, that's the section if you're reading the one-year Bible where you want to give up. You know? Okay. So that's, that's that part of the Bible right there in that first, that first chunk of the Bible. And in that chunk of the Bible, the, there are only 11 times that the word hope is used in that whole section of the Bible. Now, I should say the whole Bible, I, should, I forgot to mention, the whole Bible has 160 times. 
that hope is used. The word hope, like in this verse. So if it depends on the translation. It might vary a few, but basically uh, for the, transla- the main translation NIV is 160. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's, it, the point is, is um, hope is not used a super ton in the Bible. But 11 of those times, it's in this section. And a lot of it, I think, might be just, I hope I can get through the law section of the Bible. I'm just kidding. Okay, so then the next section of the Bible is the poetry wisdom section of the Bible. And that section of the Bible is within those 3,000 years. It's kind of like in this, the middle of this section. And it's basically like a journal kind of thing. Like, and so hope is in there 51 times. It's another section of the Bible, but it actually takes place in the middle of this time. And because, like, lots of hard things are happening, and actually the two biggest times that the Israelites are in slavery is in this section. And in the, um, in the book of the wisdom books, it's like, God, I, my hope is in you. You are my hope. You know, that kind of stuff. Because it's kind of like a journal, and they're like, David and different guys are like praying and praying for them to have hope to get through this situation or whatever. So there's 51 hopes in the wisdom books, which take place in this section of the Bible, the history and the law section. Then the next section is the next section of the Bible that I, that I consider hard to read. And this is my least favorite section of the Bible, even worse than the law section. And that's the um, prophets. That's the prophet section of the Bible. And that's actually where this verse comes. So you know it was totally the anointing and miracle that I picked this verse out of the prophets, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. You were supposed to laugh there. But <clears throat> anyway, so, so this section is all this stuff where the prophets are talking and the Israelites are doing a bunch of bad stuff and um, and they're prophesying that these bad things are going to happen, and then the bad things happen, and, you know, that kind of, sort of thing. So, um, so in this section, let me see how many times the word hope is used. Oh, this is around th- uh, 300 years, 300 years in that section, and there's o- only 16 times in this section, probably because the prophets are just, ticked off, you know, at how bad the Israelites are, and so they don't want to give them any hope. So it's 16 times in here, um, and one of those 16 times is this verse in this section of the prophets, okay? So, um, so then we have 400 years, I think, for that was, what, okay, 400 years in here where it's totally quiet. There's nothing in the Bible. We don't know what's, what's going on. It's probably bad, you know. But the prophets are in there, and then there's nothing in the Bible. And then this, and that's all the Old Testament. And so that's approximately the, uh, um, there's approximately 80 uh, hope, the word hope is uh, half in the Old Testament, half in the New Testament, okay? Just so you know. So, um, so there's 400 years here, and this verse that we're looking at is right in here in terms of the timeline of the Bible, okay? And so then there's 400 years, and then the Gospels, okay? This is the Gospels. This is where Jesus comes. You know, all the, this is the interesting part to read in the one-year Bible, okay? Because stuff is happening all the time. And so guess how many times the word hope is used in the Gospels? 80? No, zero, 
zero times. Actually, two times, but the two times are when Jesus is quoting a prophet. So there are only, there are basically zero times hope is used in the Gospels. And can you take a guess why that is? Because Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the hope. So he doesn't have to say, look forward to the hope, look forward to the hope. The hope's coming, whatever. Jesus was the hope. And so hope is not used in the Gospels. Isn't that amazing? And then what happens is you have the epistles. And basically, you know, the epistles, those are also easy books like Philippians, Colossians, all this kind of stuff. And they're like basically letters to the Christians like do this, don't do that, you know, that sort of thing after so that people knew what to do after Jesus came. So there's the epistles and that has basically all it has 79 words hope. Now, guess what kind of hope is in this section? Do you know? It's hope for the future. It's hope for the future. Jesus is coming. Don't lose hope. The time is near. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's discussing the hope that you are going to be having. It's referring to hope in the future. There are a few exceptions, and if I have time, I'll get to one of them. There are a few exceptions, but for the vast majority of the words hope in this section, the epistle section of the Bible, are all referencing the future and Jesus coming back. Then there is a period of nothing, which is where we're at. You know, there's no section in the Bible being written right now. This is a period of nothing. And then the book of Revelation is here. Now, and when that explains the future and this Revelation explains heaven and a bunch of stuff about um, horses and candlesticks and things. And so, um, so this is Revelation. And how many times do you think Revelation has the word hope? Take a guess. Zero. Zero again. Isn't that crazy? So when Jesus comes and is on the earth, no need to discuss hope. When Jesus, we're in heaven and we're, you know, figuring out the golden roads and so forth. Um, we don't need hope. We're already there. We're in heaven. We have hope. Jesus is hope, right? But we're right in here, right? So we're in this middle and we don't know if we're right here. You know, we don't know if Jesus is going to come during this service or we don't know if it's like we're right over here or where exactly we're at. And, and, but in any case, we're in here. We're between the epistles and we're between, um, and the revelation and the epistles have all of the words hope in them. Okay. So, so that's kind of the, the timeline of hope in the Bible. It's very interesting because what you see is you can see a pattern of when people needed hope. You see a pattern of why the word hope is actually in the Bible. Now, actually, when you add it all up over here, the Israelites are in slavery, actually, through that time, 500 years. And if you keep that in, per- to just, just to give you perspective, um, slavery, slavery of African-American populations in the U.S. were in slavery about 450 years. Almost exactly the same. 
So it's actually very similar. And and there's also this similar thing to uh, African-American slavery where, you know, like 12 million came over in the boats, but they died in the boats um, when they were coming over. So there are actually only 10 million that landed here and then they were split in different ways. And I think around 500,000 or something ended in the U.S. and other ones, um, other um, people ended up in like South America and stuff. But anyway, the point is, is that they, um, they started with this big number and, and then it kept getting narrowing down because of death and, and so forth, because of the difficult conditions that they were in. And the same exact thing happened with the Israelites. As the years of slavery passed, they went from having, you know, millions, hundreds of millions and everything of people. And over the years, in the course of all those slavery, they kept whittling down and whittling down and whittling down in terms of their numbers, which is very, very similar to what happened to our uh, African-American people um, in the Americas. So anyway, um, what happened was, is um, right in here in the book of Jeremiah, in the prophets, you can see, you know, this is bad things like slavery and just all sorts of things. I mean, by the time they were here, I mean, they were like cannibals and they were just like paraded through the city naked. And I mean, it was just a bad situation, you know. And, um, and what happened was, is a false prophet came and told these guys, the Israelites, he said, Hey, you're going to be delivered from the slavery in two years. And the Israelites were so happy because only two more years, you know, all these years of terrible conditions and situations, and we're only going to have two more years. And Jeremiah comes in and he calls this false prophet, you know, a liar and basically says, he says, no. It's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. So when he said this, it didn't feel like good news to them. It actually felt like bad news because they, the other person had said that they, they were only going to be in slavery two years. And then, and then Jeremiah comes in, you know, um, Mr. Bad news person. And he comes in and he says exactly the opposite. And um, he said, it's not true. God didn't have plans to make everything better in two years. And um, so basically what happened is a lot of people happen. What happens in um, the American church when a promise is given that's not God, they get disillusioned. Right. They think, you know, God is God's a liar. God doesn't exist or whatever, because they feel like they've been told or given this promise that wasn't really promised from God. It was just somebody talking, trying to make them feel better. You know what I'm saying? And and so when uh, so false prophecy, I believe, is still in operation today. And what happens is it actually hurts and destroys the church and his followers, it doesn't help. And and so anyway, that's what happened. And so the Israelites were like, this is a bummer, you know, 70 more years. You know how long 70 years is? That's like a person's whole life. I mean, it meant that some of their, them, some of them are going to die and their children might die. And I mean, it was a really long time, you know, and, um, and so anyway, um, 
But Jeremiah then said in the context of, actually, will you go to the verse where it says for 70 years, where is the chunk? I can't see up there. Um, for the chunk, I want to read this verse in context of, of what Jeremiah was saying. I think they're ready to go. Can you go back to that chunk of that verse? Okay. This is what the Lord says. Okay. This is what Jeremiah talking right here. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you. Who's I? God. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Next verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. In the context of God saying it's going to be 70 years, in the very context of that, he says, I know you, I have plans for you, the plans are to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So many times the prophecies are what we believe about God. It's not, uh, it's not the wrong information. It's the wrong timing. God may have, in fact, given you a word from him, a true, true prophecy, but the timing might not be right. Look at that. Did, did God abandon his people in this time? They were in a tough situation. I, I mean, I don't know if I want to raise your hands, but how many are in a tough situation? I will raise my hand. I am in a tough situation. God says to me, I know the plans I have for you. God has plans for me. He has a plan for you. That is a promise you can count on. That's not bad theology. The bad theology is whether it's two years or seven years. It's the timing of when God delivers his promise. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, God says. You think that's good? Plans not to harm you. Do you think that's good? Plans to give you a hope. Do you think that's good? And a future. And the key word, I believe, in order for us to stand on that promise and uh, abide in that promise is to, as is that word, hope. Because those other things are going to happen in God's timing, whatever he promised, you know, and so on and so forth. But what we have to have as believers is we have to have a hope in the future. We have to have a hope in the future. There's three components to the timing of God's promise. The first one for a hope in the future is this one right here where God says, I'm going to fulfill my promise, you know, and in the timeline of this, you know, like a small step is 70 years. You know what I'm saying? So the, um, the first part of the promise is this. I'm going to give you a hope in the future. I'm going to look out for you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm not, you're not going to not be harmed and so on and so forth. The second component of the promise is from here to here for us now as, as believers in the new covenant. We have a hope, not just a hope like, oh, we're hanging on in the Old Testament. We have a hope in Christ. 
we have a promise from God. God has, Jesus has already taken care of stuff. And so we can have a hope in him as well. We don't just have to have a hope that, okay, I'm going to get through and survive. We also have a hope in Jesus Christ, the son of God who conquered death, hell and the grave. Then we have a third kind of hope. We have a hope from here all the way to here. We have a third hope, and our hope is in heaven. Our hope is when all of this mess, you know, our house payments, the the school that our kids are in, you know, uh, bankruptcy, uh, being, not finding a spouse, you know, all, I don't know, not, not getting, not getting approved for your green card or being separated from, from a family, you know, where they're trying to get their rest, their family together in immigration and just, you know, all this terrible, difficult stuff. We have a hope from all the way over there to all the way over here. Right in the here, we don't need to have a hope for anything because there's no crying here. There's, we don't need money here. We don't need to figure out where we're going to live here. We don't have to figure out any of those things because God has it all covered. And we can rest and abide in the powerful future that we have in Christ. And we are here. And so we look for in the timeline of, of history and timeline of this, we are here. And so this is ultimately where we look for our future. But I want to just, and the worship team can come. I just, I just want us to, and you can keep that verse up. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing that God's promise stood right there. He would restore his people. He would take care of them out of this desperate situation, but he would do it in a way that he hadn't, that, that they hadn't planned. He would do it in a way that they haven't planned. Now, how many of you have a situation in your life that you hope for? But it's possible God is not going to meet that need in the way that you have planned. What if God is going to meet that way in a way that you don't have planned? There's a lot of biblical precedent, biblical examples of that taking place. Of God fulfilling his promise but in a way that wasn't planned. Now I want to just, and, and so we just remember that in that passage, we say in the middle of slavery, in the middle of slavery, God said, I will come. I will fulfill my promise. I have plans. I have plans to prosper you. I have plans not to harm you. I have plans to give you hope. I have plans to give you a future. I will listen. I will be found. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations. That's all in those three verses. All those promises from God. God has a plan. And your job is to place your hope in the Lord. And trust him for his plan. Your job is to place your hope in the Lord. Because he is the one with, that has a plan. I'm going to just briefly tell this story. And then we're going to close the service and just take some time to reflect on um, 
your situation and what's inside of you and the hope that you need from Christ. But uh, this is just very, very recent. But when I was uh, had my th- a thesis defense uh, for my master's degree, um, normally the defense is relatively, a f- it's like a formality because the people have already read your documents and have already told you what's wrong and that kind of thing. But I went into my thesis defense thinking as a formality. And what happened was is a little ways in, this professor just latched onto something in my thesis document like a pit bull. And she just would not let it go. She just bit in and hung on. And, and she just kept pressing things and pressing things and pressing things. And, and so for the next hour or so, I continued to interact with this single professor as I struggled to, uh, gain or kind of maintain my composure. I was literally talking in my thesis defense, uh, with tears running down my face. And even after they'd moved on to the next part, I just could not recover. It was just so humiliating. And, you know, it's just like, I am too old for this. Like, I don't need this, you know? And it was just embarrassing and humiliating. And it was just this terrible, terrible feeling. And I just had this dark place, you know? And actually, a few days after the thing that, remember the Nigerian professor, atheist professor? He said, Carrie, what you're doing is important work. You know, you just need to push through. Don't, don't let it get buried. Just push through. You know, he was trying to encourage me because he was in that meeting and it was just like, it was bad. It was a bad situation. And it was like in that, in that meeting, in that whatever defense, it was like something in me died. I don't know how to explain it. There's like some chunk out of me that just, I felt I will never recover from that. Um, and I don't know why I felt that way. I mean, I, I never cry at things other than at church of like, I'm really moved by the Holy spirit or something, but it was just the worst feeling. And I just could not move on. It was like, it was like this big chunk of me had just been removed. I felt that there, that chunk would never ever grow back, that I would constantly have that, uh, pain in my life. And, um, and even, I mean, and I had to continue to pass that professor in the hallway, say hello to that professor. I mean, it was several weeks before I even went to my advisor and talked to him about the meeting. It was that bad. It's like, I couldn't even think about that meeting without crying. It was, um, it was bad. And um, so anyway, I just, I, I felt no hope. I felt no hope at all that I could ever recover from that and move on. And, um, and I would ask God, you know, um, in church, you know, at the altar time or not the altar time, like in worship time or what, at the altar time, anytime, 
I would just, I would just, I wouldn't even talk to God, but I was just in my heart. I knew God knew what I was talking about, where I was just saying that, please fix this because I cannot like start crying every time I think about this stupid meeting. It's like, it doesn't even matter. It's like, what does this woman think? I'm, what does that even matter? But for some reason, it just, it just, it did. I don't know why. And, um, and so I think that that's when I began to think about this verse and meditate on this verse and think about God has plans to give me a hope in the future, even through this very, very, very painful situation. And I believe that God has a plan for, to do that same thing for you. I don't know if you have that big chunk out of your life from some kind of bad thing that has happened or some like bad circumstance or just, I don't know, maybe like from a divorce or something, there's just this hole that is just feels completely unrecoverable. Or maybe it's that you've been promised something from God and the timing is not working out as planned. Um, and, and for some reason, God maybe has said something to you through a person or maybe just through your own heart or maybe something from the Bible. Maybe your kid's getting saved or, or something like that. And it's like you just, the, the timing is off. You thought it was going to happen a certain time and it's not. We're going to put, we're going to sing a song. And what we're going to do, this, this song, we sang it earlier to, in the, during communion. But I, I want us to sing this song and to sing it as a prayer and to think about it in terms of how Christ, the very first verse says, Christ is our hope. And then what happens is, is in the song, it goes from Christ being our hope to all the way over here. Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. And after the worship team plays a song, and I want you to sing sing it. I want you to stand as they sing it. And I want you to, from the bottom of your heart, sing it as a prayer. And then after that, I want to pray for you and for hope to rest on your hearts and minds. Okay? So can you stand with me, please? And we're going to sing through... And the, the very first verse talks about hope, and then it talks about what Christ has done. So let's sing this song as a faith-building experience to focus on who Christ is. Christ is Lord.